We're looking today at the first major half of chapter 15. You'll notice we began last week with the first 11 verses and what everyone in Corinth, together with Paul, held in common, the gospel he delivered to them about a once dead and raised saviour. And then the rest of the chapter splits into two big chunks, each ending with a strong command or imperative. And we're looking at the first of those today, chapters 15, verses 12 to 34. Now, if, if, as I've just laid out, and we all agree, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, empty, and your faith is empty. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in their own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says there in Psalm 8, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, that is God the Father, or strictly speaking, God the Trinity, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of or for or with regard to the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized with regard to them or on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. 
For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Well, let's bow our heads. Almighty Father, we believe in the death and resurrection of Christ for us. We believe in the power of your Holy Spirit. We believe in the resurrection of the body and in life everlasting. So speak life into our hearts today, we pray. Amen. How to win at Christianity. That's the question that the Corinthians want answered, and perhaps you are looking in at the Christian church this morning, wondering if it has anything at all to say about life in this broken world. And you wouldn't mind an answer too. What is the secret to the Christian life? There's nothing more frustrating, is there, than someone who refuses to give a direct answer to a question. We watch and sit as politicians wriggle on the hook, and we want to throw things at the screen. Not when it's difficult to give a simple answer. I think we understand that. But when they don't want to tell you something they believe, but don't think you'll like, that is infuriating. And it's something you could never accuse the Apostle Paul of. He has been very direct in challenging the Corinthian answer to that question. How do you win at the Christian life? You don't win by looking your best and impressing the world with your sophisticated thought or by ascending to some spiritual plane of living where you leave the ordinary Christians behind. No, Paul's told us not to do that. And in a hundred different ways, he's been creeping up on the alternative. He's called us to follow him and embrace his cross-shaped ministry, to lay down our rights and our needs and our status out of love for one another and love for the lost. And time and again, he's been calling us to his pattern of life and ministry that looks like Jesus and centers on Jesus' cross. And today at last, 26 sermons in, he's going to spell out an answer in three simple words. How do you win at Christianity? Verse 31, die every day. That's the secret. Die every day, safe in the arms of Jesus. Now, I don't know how that message strikes you. Maybe it's a little weak, perhaps even a bit despairing or macabre. Is that really the best that we have to expect out of this life? Well, I want to suggest that, in fact, it is a deeply, wonderfully freeing message because it puts life in this age and life in this body back in its box. It means we don't need to be dominated by the need to win in this age we don't need to squeeze every drop of joy and every last second of existence that this life has to offer us. And we don't need to hide from the reality of death as if we'd already arrived at some sort of Christian nirvana where everything is meant to be wonderful. No, all over this chapter, death is painted as something inescapable. It's death before resurrection. That's the pattern here. 
And that death is not something we hide from. It's a pattern to embrace. Because in raising Jesus from the dead, God was doing something much bigger and much more wonderful than joining Christians to some sort of earthly self-improvement club where we just pretend everything is fine and our struggles have all vanished and our hearts only ever sing. That is not what church is. Some place for earthly spiritual advancement. No, we are in a much bigger, much better story than that. And so the summons of this whole letter, as the scholar Matthew Malcolm wonderfully puts it, is to join the ranks of the dead while we wait for a bigger, better hope. We're going to break the argument down into three this morning, and it starts in verses 12 to 19, with Paul showing up how sad and empty their view of the Christian life really was, the thing that he wants to free us from. Verses 12 to 19, your hope is pitifully small. Now, what a thing that is to say to the most sophisticated church in the Greek-speaking world, verse 19. If this is really all you've got, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Is this really it? There is some sense, at least in which, some of the Corinthians, verse 12, are denying the resurrection of believers. And it's hard to know exactly what that looked like. We touched on it last week. But almost certainly, it involves bigging up the spiritual life now and at the very least downplaying our true bodily future hope so that verse 19, their real hope, all centered on this life. And as Calvin put it, the resurrection basically became something figurative in their thinking, perhaps even something that spiritual people already enjoyed. Sure, it's in the background, it's in their Christian vocabulary, but it's not exactly central to their hope. Christianity is here to make me the best me I can be, to become a deeper, wiser, more spiritual sort of person. And as if God is in the business of connecting me with the supernatural and helping me rise above the earthly mundane stuff. It's why church in Corinth was all about individuals jostling for position. That was what they valued. And isn't that really why many of us still come to church today? For an earthly hope of self-improvement. I want me to feel like a more spiritual me. I want my kids to get a good spiritual start in life. How does that connect with the gospel message that Paul handed over to them and we remembered in verses 1 to 11 and all you Corinthians profess to believe? A Christianity that only has space for this life makes no sense of a Jesus who died for your sins and was buried and rose again. If you lose sight of our resurrection, verse 12, then in effect, you're denying his. And a Christianity without a once dead, risen Messiah is utterly hollow and meaningless. Either he died and he rose and it changes everything for you, or one of those things isn't really true. And the whole thing unravels. 
What it can't be is true, but unimportant. So look at the disastrous consequences of thinking about the Christian life in a way that doesn't connect with the death and resurrection of Jesus, that doesn't see that as the central truth of all history. First, verses 13 to 15, it means that you have based your life on a lie. All of this, it doesn't matter how impressive it looks compared to other churches, all of this is just perpetrating one massive fraud because our message that we apostles, he says, deliver to you was empty. And worse than that, verses 16 to 18, your obsession with this life is robbing you of the two most precious comforts every Christian ought to cherish. If Jesus didn't rise, we would still be lost in our sins, and our loved ones who died trusting him would be gone forever. Can you imagine, you Christians, going through life without those two comforts? How unspeakably sad this world must be. Because when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was his way of demonstrating that on the cross he really did pay it all. How do we know that Jesus did enough? How do we know that he was good enough, spotless enough to atone for every last one of our sins? Because hell threw everything it had at Jesus Christ and it could not keep him down. He faced death head on, went right to the depths, carrying all of our sin, and still, with all justice, God the Father was able to claim him back from a place that no son of Adam has ever escaped. And so we know the price really has been paid. However much it cost to win me back with a heart this sin-stained, he did it. How unthinkably cruel it must be, though, to live under the impression that was true, that our sins had been forgiven, that we would see our loved ones again who died in him, only to discover a God full of nothing for you but wrath. Your advocate stands before the almighty judge, and with a flourish he presents to the court the case of evidence that is meant to acquit you, clear your name, and when he opens it up, there's nothing inside. A hollow case, empty, all in vain. If Jesus did not rise, then death would hold nothing for us but dread and grief. Now, of course, that is not the Christianity the Corinthians wanted or that God wanted for them. Jesus did rise. That's the one thing they still agree on. And it means we're meant to have hope in the face of death and comfort in the face of bereavement. And we don't need to pretend that this life delivers more than it really does. There's a reason that Paul calls the death of a Christian sleep. It's not that he's scared of saying death like some ghastly modern humanist. No, it's because he really believes that for those who die in Jesus, Death is temporary. The point about sleep is that you wake. Dying and your soul going to be with Jesus is not all we have to look forward to. It is just not good enough. 
Vaughan Roberts points out that even our word cemetery comes from the Greek word for dormitory. It's a sleeping place. One day you and everyone you loved who died trusting him will wake up to a real, earthy, wholesome, bodily life. But how pitifully small is a Christian hope that offers nothing better than spiritual self-improvement in this life only. Maybe you come to church for the singing, for the community. I get that. I love those things too. But I've got to be honest, there is just as much community in a CrossFit gym. There's better music in a nightclub where the singers are never flat and the tech always works. And if the songs are ever cheesy, they're meant to be that way. And it costs far less to enjoy. So if that is all we're here for, we're wasting our time. Our hope is pitifully small. Of course, the truth is just the opposite, isn't it? Of all people in this broken world, Jesus' people should be the most beautifully privileged. Because in fact, verse 20, as they all know, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that changes everything. They can cling to those comforts. And it changes the whole focus of the Christian life. And that is what Paul shows them in verses 20 to 28. God's project is wonderfully big. In raising his son from the grave, God was doing something much more wonderful than making individual Christians a little bit more special adding us to some earthly club. God's project does not revolve around my life. God's project is a rescue mission on a cosmic scale. And the spoiler, the goal, comes in verse 24. Here is where all of history is headed. Then comes the end, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he's destroyed every rule and authority and power. What God was doing when he raised Christ from the dead was setting a human king upon the throne who would bring history to its end, or literally its goal, its telos, its perfected state. So God's project is bigger than any one of us. God's project is about setting all things right. And crucially, he would do that under a true human king. That's what mankind was made for, wasn't it? To make this world perfect. It's our purpose. Adam was a royal son. He was made to be king, to spread the Garden of Eden from pole to pole as God's image bearer. He was to finish God's work of bringing beauty and order out of the chaos into every corner of the globe. But instead of introducing beauty and order, Adam introduced sin and death. And every man, woman, and child ever since has left this world more sad and more broken than he found it. Because every man, woman, and child descended from Adam is infected with his death and his disobedience. In Adam, verse 22, all die. But God, in his love, sent a second man into this world, a second human king, a Christ. It's what that word means. The focus on this 
whole paragraph is on Jesus' humanity, his role as our king, our mediator. And only when every last enemy has been destroyed will his kingly work be done so that a human Christ can bow down before his father's throne, verse 24, and offer up his sword to rule over a perfect world. That is where history is headed. What was God doing when he raised his Christ from the dead? He was beginning that great battle with the greatest of enemies. Christ was raised, just one man, Death is still a reality that every other human being is held by in a kind of chokehold. But that one man, verse 20, was raised as the first fruits of a massive harvest that will one day come. The point of the first fruits is that they are proof of concept, aren't they? You see those first fruits. You taste something good, something real and tangible that is actually grown out of the mud, and now you know a crop really is coming. The seed was good. It works. So we get a brief history of human death in these verses. More than that, a brief history of death. Adam earned it. Adam unleashed it on the world, on every man and every beast under his care. Christ faced it and exhausted it, and has broken his way out of it. And now he is standing in a wide open field on the other side. We are one with Adam. Every one of us shares in him. We're infected by his death. It's inescapable. The question is, will we be one with Jesus? Because only in him, verse 22, will all be made alive. A great harvest of the dead is to come in the field he plowed for us. So will we throw in our seed where Jesus has gone? And that is the big question, because we don't get to bypass death. Each in his own order, verse 23. It's as if he's saying to them, their friends, you are not raised yet. Each in his own order, however impressive you are, so far, it is only Jesus, the first fruits, and only at his coming, at the end of time, will those who belong to him get to join in his resurrection, his bodily victory. Right now, we live somewhere in between. We live in that great until of Psalm 110, which Paul quotes there in verse 25. Jesus must reign until he puts every enemy under his feet. And that is what he's doing right now. As the gospel of the risen Jesus is preached to the lost and the sad and the dying and the scared, and we are released from fear and delivered to the kingdom of his son, God is putting enemies under the feet of Jesus. Right now, the once dead, exalted Messiah is ruling history and taking down every enemy. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That will only happen. Death will only be destroyed by resurrection. When the earth gives up the bodies of every single one of its victims. He has broken it. 
But it's a reality you and I still need to face in trust. So can we do that? Can we stare death in the face, trusting Jesus? Imagine a king who has command of all his kingdom. He has every single subject at his beck and call. He could snap his fingers, and whatever he wants, it happens, except for one little thing he can't control, the lice, teeny little lice crawling over his body. Is that king truly sovereign? Is he all in all? He's not, is he? There is no use ruling all the world if you can't stop your own head from itching. Well, God is putting every enemy under his son, every last one. He wants it perfect. And that is why your bodily resurrection is a guarantee. Jesus has broken death, but he will not be truly sovereign over everything if just one of those who belong to him is lost. Death must go. And only then, when every enemy is vanquished by man's true king, will the promise of the Psalms be fulfilled so that our Messiah can hand over the kingdom to God the Father. And God, the Holy Trinity, is all in all. Now, why does Paul tell them all of that? It's interesting. Why does he tell them? The Corinthians have a small, empty view, don't they, of what it is to be human. Their view of humanity is over-spiritualized and disembodied and pale and joyless and me-centered. But they also have a shallow view of what God is doing in human history. His project is far, far bigger than giving us our best lives now. It is so, so important. It is so important that we know what kind of story we are in. There really is no way of reading this chapter without an incredibly optimistic view of human history. And there are different ways you might work that out in terms of how you understand the end times coming. But what you cannot do is what I think we're quite prone to doing, looking at the world we see and thinking it's getting worse and worse every day. No, the risen Jesus is reigning right now, putting everything under his feet one by one. There might be times our little part of the story feels like it's going backwards, like things are slipping into darkness, but zoom out and it can only ever be a tiny strategic reversal in a far bigger story of our king's advance. And we need to know that because that is what frees us to hear Paul's big message in the last paragraph. Your hope is pitifully small. God's project is wonderfully big. So finally, verses 29 to 32, fall in. Fall out with the bad company leading you astray. Fall out with those who boast about their special knowledge. But in truth, verse 34, how cutting is this? In truth, they don't even know God or his agenda for the world. Fall out with their triumphalistic, man-centered Christianity and fall in with the League of the Dead. 
And so here it comes at last. What on earth is going on in verse 29? What is that all about? It's what we want to know, isn't it? And it's a good question because often when you scratch at those tricky bits in the Bible, you discover some very helpful things. Verse 29 reads in our translations as if there was some strange Corinthian custom going on of one Christian being baptized in place of a loved one. Perhaps it was someone who died before they had the chance to be baptized for themselves. And that is a possible way to read the text. The Greek word hooper often means on behalf of someone else. The problem is there's no precedent of that anywhere else in the Bible. And there's no historical record of it ever happening in the early church. And there's no easy way to make sense theologically of what people thought was going on there. And so it's hard not to agree with John Calvin, who says that if that's really what was happening, it's almost impossible to imagine Paul using it as an example without a word of comment. He's been quite happy so far to point out the places where the Corinthians have gone off the rails, veered out of step with other churches. In which case, how are we meant to read verse 29? What is happening? Well, you can take your pick of the commentaries and you'll find plenty of possible answers. So I'll give you my hunch in a minute, but I think it can only ever be that, a hunch. And that's okay because the important thing isn't actually Paul's illustration. It's the thing that it's illustrating. That if the Corinthians really want to ignore eternity and make everything about hope in this life and either downplay or outright deny the resurrection, then what on earth do they think Christians everywhere else are playing at? This is actually the first in a barrage of questions, isn't it? All starting in Greek with the same little words and all making the same point. And the point is clear. If it's true that this is it, then what do you think Christians are playing at? Your own Christian lives and my life and the life and behavior of Christians all over the world totally contradict you. That's the basic point. And of the hundreds of variations on verse 29 that made the most sense to me, I think it was our friend Andy Gemmell who asked the most insightful question, Look carefully at this chapter and ask, who exactly are the dead that he's talking about? Who are the dead? Well, who does Paul go on to talk about in the very next breath? Who's he been talking about all the way through? Why are we, that is me and Sosthenes, my co-writer, my mission partner, why are we in danger every hour? I die every day. And it is my pride and joy to do that by the grace of Jesus to bring the gospel to you. It's Paul, isn't it? It's Paul whose death-shaped ministry, disgusting ministry in their eyes, has been in the background and sometimes the foreground all through this chapter. That is the thing that looks weak and deathly to the Corinthians. Paul's take on the Christian life one that says, lay your life down and take your cross up in love. Why would I do that if this life was all there is? 
let me talk in a human way, verse 32, a worldly way, a Corinthian way. What do I gain if I'm thrown to the beasts in the arena? That's a picture he's used already in this letter of being exhibited like a man condemned to die, a laughingstock flung into the circus for the message of the cross. Does that kind of Christian life make sense if this is all there is to live for? Why throw it away? Why let yourself be ridiculed? Who are the dead? The dead are those who follow Paul as he follows Jesus. The dead are the weak, the unimpressive, the powerless to save themselves, the despairing of anything but the power of God. Because what can a dead man do for himself? Paul is good as dead, ready to be dead, about as impressive to the worldly wise as the dead, because he follows that once dead king, a king who looked his proud, boasting, jostling disciples, remember, in the eyes and said to them, following me means being baptized into my cross, my death. Yes, often that Greek word hooper means something like on behalf of, in place of, like it does here in our ESV translation. But it can mean something a lot weaker than that, and it's a very broad word. Many of the older translations just left it as for, baptized for the dead. As if, as Calvin puts it, their very reason for asking for baptism was that they despaired of life. They were willing to lay it down and trust it into the arms of Jesus. Sometimes it means something like concerning or with regard to. Paul came preaching the gospel as one who was already dead, and they were baptized with regard to that ministry, that example. Remember Bonhoeffer's famous phrase, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Why on earth, Paul asks them now, why on earth would anyone be baptized into that kind of Christianity? Only, surely, because they know what kind of story we are in. One that is very big and very glorious, just not right now. Do you see, it's that big, beautiful glorious picture of what God is doing in the world through his son, that optimistic understanding of human history, which frees Paul to lay down his life in service. He belongs to Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful word? He belongs to Jesus. He has a home waiting for him. And that's what releases him from the fear of death. For him, it just is not Life at all costs. That's where our world is, isn't it? As much, to be honest, in the church as outside of it. Life at all cost. Friends, that message is antithetical to the Christian hope. For Paul, it was share the joy of the lordship of Jesus and life in him at all costs. So what a difference it makes to live with the comfort and the confidence of God's risen, conquering Son. 
Has that changed how you'll live this next week? It means we can take enormous risks for the sake of the gospel because we know what kind of story we're in. It means we can lose. We can be laughed at. We can be thought simple and looked down on. We can fall in with the league of the dead and the dying. Not because death is flippant. Death is a monster. But because Jesus is Lord and he is stronger still. Let's pray. Almighty God, who by the glorious resurrection of your son Jesus Christ has destroyed death's claim and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, give to us, we pray, the grace to follow where our king has gone. Free us from the fear of death, from the fear of losing face, from the need to win in this age, and fill us with the joy of belonging to your eternal king of love and goodness and grace, in whose strong name we pray. Amen.